Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our gospel lesson from the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And as we begin, we'll probably start with something you may have heard before, especially if you've been here at Resurrection as long as I have. Because I've used this here before, but I think it fits. What would it look like if Satan ran the city? What would it look like in your neighborhood, in your downtown, if Satan ran the city, if he had complete control of it to do whatever he pleased? You might think to yourself, crime, litter, graffiti, danger, all sorts of human despair, and problems. Have you ever thought that the reverse would be true as well? What would it look like if Satan ran the city? Maybe it would look like Pleasantville or like Wolbegon, um, where all the children are well-dressed, well taken care of, all the streets are clean, all the businesses are affluent, and the, the city is very tidy. All the lawns are mowed on time, and all the trees are pruned perfectly. And the churches are full every Sunday. Churches where Christ is not preached. And I think that's actually a fairly good illustration for the next thing I want to talk about. Um, I'll take you back to 1998, 25 years ago, 1998. 1998, America Online was still sending CDs to people's houses so that they could use their phone line to connect to this thing called the internet. 1998, Blockbuster was nearly at the peak of its popularity. And this new little startup called Netflix was just around the corner. They would start mailing you a DVD. 1998, a former governor from Arkansas was in his second term as president. 1998 was two years before a very convoluted election. Three years before a terror attack. 1998, the Wall Street Journal commissioned a study where they, they took a survey of a thousand people um, of all the generations that were available to them. A study of 1,000 people asking them, what do you value the most? And it had answers like hard work, community, inclusion, tolerance, um, family, children, raising children patriotism, and devotion to your country and to your community. And in 1998, number one at the top was this idea of patriotism. 1998, where the majority of the voting bloc of the country had grown up knowing the strife of the 60s and the fallout of the Vietnam War. 1998, when we were only six and a half years removed from liberating Kuwait, and the kind of swell of patriotism and the yellow ribbons that coincided. 1998. Number one at the top, patriotism. Number two. Number two and three were you know, kind of interchangeable. They were almost identical. Between devotion to children and devotion to community. 1998. I was finishing my last year of middle school, looking ahead to high school. You can probably think back to where you were 25 years ago as well. 
Because 25 years later, 2023, the Wall Street Journal commissioned these same reports so that they can compare apples to apples on how the different generations and how the general values of Americans had changed over time. And it was a near total reversal. It wasn't just a decline of patriotism, home, raising children, community. It just fell off a cliff. And you can probably understand why. Like, people who look at numbers like this and, um, and try to come up with explanations for numbers like that, they probably have come up with some rather decent explanations for why. But it wouldn't take too much to figure out. Well, if the idea of patriotism now in our divided political climate as it is, whether it was more or less divided back in 1998, at least there was still some unifying factors. But now, where each side will say, this is patriotic, the other side of the aisle will say the exact opposite thing is patriotic. Where one side of the aisle will say, well, it's patriotic to, to obey your government, respect your government, and submit to what they say. The other side will say it is patriotic to exercise your right to protest in whatever way, shape, or form that may take. Both sides of the, of the aisle proposing that opposite ideas are both equally patriotic. It's not too much of a stretch to say, well, maybe there's been a downfall of patriotism. In the 25 years since 1998, perhaps you think of um, the election of 2000 and the terror attacks of 2001 and the 20 years of fighting on the other side of the world. And now, you know, two gener a generation and a half removed, further along, now the general voting bloc are those who have grown up in a post-9-11 world, whose um, uncles or fathers, in some cases, had spent many years deployed to places like Afghanistan or Iraq. But the rest of it, they all kind of go hand in hand as a, as a basket. Patriotism fell off to the bottom. Um, children raising children had also fallen off, and devotion to community had also, was right there, you know, bringing up the rear at the bottom of this, of this study. Why? Because in a world of terror attacks, of pandemics and disease, of inflation that looks like it had been going out of control and is finally un under control a little bit, or so they say, because we don't go back to what it was two years ago, right? But that's a different discussion entirely. In a world of war, of wondering if the crazy guy on the other side of the world is going to launch nuclear weapons, of wondering what is the climate actually going to do and how does that affect my life. In a world wondering what kind of world are my children going to grow up in, it doesn't take too much of a stretch to say, well, maybe it's pessimism. Maybe people are just pessimistic about the future, and so patriotism has fallen off because you can redefine that however you wish, and devotion to children has fallen off because, um, because of concerns about the world around us. But third part, devotion to community organizations and your local community. The only uniting factor is a switch from a very community-oriented mindset to a very individual mindset. Because now, 2023, same questions, the value at the top is hard work, 
and the one right after that is something else that can also be explained as the only value we have is the ability to keep score. The only value we have is the ability to keep score, that my hard work will go into my occupation, my job, into my career, into my education, that my hard work will demonstrate that I measure up, that, that children are a drain on finances, a drain on time, and not really worth it. But what I can demonstrate by my hard work that I have accomplished, that I am enough. That's kind of the encapsulated version of looking at those two surveys, separated by 25 years, in a total switch from a collective mindset that may have looked like Mayberry, doesn't mean that the church was better off, into a very individual mindset that says each one fends for himself or herself to get what they can get, to accomplish what they can accomplish with the little time that they have under the sun. And that opening question, what would it look like if the devil were in the city? Well, it could look like either. But Jesus gives us the spiritual application. Because as people, as plants who are growing in his field, as members of his church who are being built into a holy house, Jesus gives us Matthew chapter 13 to demonstrate for you and for me exactly the sort of reactions to his word that have always been there. And you read through it and you know it. And whether, whether it's from your own experience, from your experience within your own family, or from participating in a church for a while, it doesn't take much explanation from Jesus to say, I know exactly what you're talking about here. The sower goes up to sow his seed. He has his bag. He doesn't have a broadcast spreader that he can push as if you were fertilizing your lawn. He doesn't even have a prank thing that you can get from the hardware store. He has a bag. He throws. And some lands on the rocky, the, the hard, hard beaten path. And the bird comes along and eats it up. Some grows up and it does not have much root and quick, quickly withers. And you know these things. We see it. We see the conversation we want to have. And then the person's reasonable, rational mind is twisted against the Word of God, as if to say that is not fair. Which, coincidentally, is the context for Isaiah 55, that my ways are not your ways. God says that he is inherently not fair because he chooses to forgive sin. That he is above our logic and above our reason. But we get it. That you try to have that conversation, you try to instruct that person, and any progress that had been made is quickly snatched away by temptation, by doubt, by wonder, by doubt that takes doubt everywhere else except for the one who can answer it. gets to the point of standing right here. Do you intend with the help of God to remain faithful in word and sacrament until death? Do you intend to remain faithful to Jesus even enduring bullying, ostracization, or death rather than give up on this Jesus? Yes, 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 and ask God to help me. And eight months later, pastor texts, pastor calls. How have you been? Haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? You know, we're busy. Let's take a break from church for a while. 
we understand what Jesus is talking about here, and he is describing the experience of God's church at every stage, whether it is in, in a cultural circumstance that looks like it may be very clean and well-kept, um, or whether a cultural circumstance that says every person for himself or herself. <coughs> but the one to look at today, and I can't get this out of my mind, is the one about the thorns. Other seed fell among the thorns, the thorns grew up and choked it. Simple statement, verse 7. And he explains, verse 22. The seed that was sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word. But the worry of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it produces no fruit. Wow. If that doesn't describe the world in which we live, I don't know what would. And you know this from experience, too. You can look at your own life and you can think to yourself, well, Pastor Hagen, um, I've never won the lottery. And the pension isn't exactly what I was hoping it would be with the rising costs and the, that I have to pay. I don't have much to worry about when we're talking about thorns here because I don't have the, um, the wealth that Jesus refers to here. But you know, as verse 22, he begins with the worries of this world. That the issue isn't the amount of uh, monetary resources in the bank. The issue is looking around and saying, I'm worried about this world, and I need to fix it. I'm worried about this world, and I can't get it out of my mind, so I need to sit down and do all the work and do all the planning. I am worried, and I need to have an answer. And just like that, the field sprouts with thorns. The worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth spring up and choke out the faith which God had planted and you can't separate it from the culture in which we live. Where it had been 25 years ago, um, country and community and children, down to the bottom. Why would I spend my time, my limited resources, my energy, investing in these things that don't benefit me? And right up to the top, the number one thing, I need to find some way of lasting value, and if I can't have something of lasting value, then I need to be able to demonstrate that I am good enough. That, at the end of the day, the only metric for measuring that is how much I make, what is the degree that I have, what is my position in the company, and surely, surely that will be able to tell me that I am enough and I measure up. Because everyone for himself or herself. <clears throat> Among all the, the reactions to God's word that we hear about in Matthew chapter 13, um, I think that one is probably the most pertinent. And it's seen there in the secular sphere. It also has its impact in the church. Because you think, well, Pastor Hagen, we're here. And under um, federal law, we are classified as a 501c3, so effectively uh, a nonprofit. Because that's how it works for tax purposes. That we are gathered here as a nonprofit. And so you think to yourself, well, Pastor Hagen, maybe, maybe the question is you're wanting to warn me against worry and the deceitfulness of wealth to solve those worries. And that's true. That's definitely true. Because the issue isn't being the wealth or the lack thereof, the issue is where do we look to fix that worry? 
And I think each of us, um, whether you're somewhere between the fixed income and the lottery winner, most of us are somewhere in there, um, you can think to yourself, well, to what degree has my heart tried to fix my worries by my solutions, rather than resting in the reality that Christ cares for me? There's that. But you look around, and living in a field of thorns where it doesn't look like much Christian faith has continued to exist, do you realize the hope that we have? That your Christianity isn't just an insurance policy that you'll cash in when Jesus takes you to heaven. That your Christianity isn't just a promise of heaven for forever, and, and we just kind of sit and we do our church thing until we get there. That your Christianity also means not just an eternity, but also a purpose for life today. You have an eternity, yes. But you have a purpose for life today. That Jesus has called you to be his own, that he has called you and named you as a member of his body, that he has built you into a fellowship of his church. As if you and I are each individual bricks or stones in this building, he builds it up and says, this is where he will put his name. That he has called you to be different for your, your purpose. That he has called you to be different, living as somebody who doesn't have to, have to scrabble for whatever you can get, but living as somebody who has been promised forever and who has all the riches of God placed into your hands at holy baptism, who has all the blessings of God placed upon your head and upon your tongue in his sacraments, all the blessings of God, your forgiveness, your righteousness, and who you are, that you aren't just um, what your name is or what your occupation is, but first and foremost that you are a Christian, a Christ person. That this Christ says, yes, he's given you an eternity, he's given you a, a purpose, but he's also given you a value. A value that doesn't rest on what you can accomplish or what you haven't accomplished. A value that doesn't rest on um, how you keep score. Talked about that two weeks ago with uh, the mirage of success. That your value doesn't rest on what you do, but what Christ has done for you. That your value isn't based on, on you know, the, the hourly rate or the contribution that you bring or even the people that you have in your life or don't have in your life. That your value is based on the blood of the Son of God. That the same one who clothes the grass of the field and feeds the sparrows of the air did not become a sparrow to save sparrows. He became a baby to save humans. That the eternal blood of the Son of God is the price that God has placed upon your head to say, what is the value of this one who was made from dust and to dust shall return? What is the value? His own life. That the blood of the Son of God means that you have a value beyond anything that this world has to offer. In addition to, in addition to being promised a, a heavenly mansion where the pavement is gold, right? Like you look out there and pavement, like a, an asphalt parking lot like this, is basically the cheapest stuff that's left over from everything else. And heaven itself is described as being paved with gold. 
that Jesus has promised you an eternity, he's promised you a purpose, he's promised you a value, but finally he's planted you here. He's planted you here in a world where the culture has changed very dramatically, much more to an individual uh, worry of this world and deceitfulness of wealth. And there are people that you know that you are neighbors to, that live in the same apartment complex, that you are related to, that are chasing these things in the hope that they will give what money promises, but only God can deliver on. They're spending their time and their effort chasing what money promises, but only God can deliver on, which is the verdict of enough. And you have that. We have that that you have God's own specific personal proclamation, that you are enough, not for your own sake, but for the sake of Jesus. That God willingly became human, took on flesh, and still retains that humanity for now and for all eternity. That he has built each of us as a brick within his church. That he is the one who ordained however many days are for you, and they're all plotted out, and, and their boundaries set before one of them came to be. That he is the one who will continue to watch over you, whether it's, um, whether it's the upcoming surgery, because he is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, and he certainly knows how to heal you after that. That he is the one who has said, you're Christian, you have an eternity. That is more life than this, and it's very specific, and it's very descriptive, and it's very personal, and you have an eternity. That you have a purpose that you have been built into God's holy house in order to declare his praises, that you have a value, a value that is based on the blood of God, that God himself shed his blood, and if it were only for you, he would have been glad to do so. But finally, together, we have been planted in a world that needs the hope that only Jesus can give. That's the biggest challenge. Because those sociological studies, like Wall Street Journal said from 1998 to 2003, and comparing them, that's kind of interesting, but realistically, what it tells us is that there are a lot of people doing exactly what Jesus said here already. Distracted by the worry of this world, and distracted by the deceitfulness of wealth, and they're looking for answers in all the wrong places, and you and I have Jesus to share. Jesus who promises an eternity and a purpose, who has named your value, planted you here to give glory to him. Amen.